Okay, uh, good evening everyone. My name is Carolyn Mead. I'm the publisher at Quella Books and it is our pleasure and delight to uh, launch Kaviva Badrin's newest poetry collection, The History of Intimacy. Um, so yes, welcome to all of you. I hope you had something to drink and had something to eat. Um, thanks so much for the book lounge uh, that are hosting us and also for Levitt Sleep who sponsored the wine. Um, let me quickly introduce you to our uh, two discussants. Not that we need introduction, but Khabibha, um, obviously, uh, is the author of the poetry collections uh, The Dream in the Next Body, The Museum of Ordinary Life, and A Hundred Silences, and she's won the Daimler Chrysler Prize for poetry. Um, she co-directs the African and Feminist Initiative at Pennsylvania State University, where she teaches uh, women's gender and sexuality studies and African studies. And uh, she's also an extraordinary professor of English um, at Stellenbosch University. And then in discussion with Khabeba is Cindy Pasupamatese. She um, published uh, her debut um, poetry collection, Loud and Yellow Laughter, in 2016, and it won the Ingrid Jonker Prize for Poetry in 2018. And uh, <laughs> a wonderful collection. And um, she is reading for her PhD at Starbucks. Um, yes, we look forward to hearing what uh, you are going to discuss tonight and also some readings by Habiba, which is always a wonderful treat. Over to you. Thank you so much. Um, welcome everyone, and thank you for coming out this evening to join us. Hello. Hello. We are all so excited to be here. Full house, loads of support, people sitting on the floors in the back. It's really wonderful after, um, for, for, some, for all the Kentonians to be coming out and um, to launch your fourth collection of poetry and the history of intimacy. So I'm not sure how we should begin, but I think the best way to begin is always with a reading. Um, so um, I'm going to hand it over to you, and I'm going to ask you to read so that, that guides us into the conversation. Thank you very much. First of all, thank you to Cindy for saying yes, bringing her magic you know, to the room because you can tell by her voice, just the spirit of this human being. Um, thank you very much to my community, and by that I mean every person here. You're my community of readers, you're my community of Muslim women with their beautiful books on. Assalamu alaikum to everybody. You're my community of people who love poetry. Um, I'm Mervyn, who founded this bookshop and changed the literary scene um, to the publishers, um, Carolyn Meads at Quella and Helen A. Princeford. Quella brought this book to such beautiful fruition. And Helga Schaber from Oxford, who's just brought out this amazing new series of translated works from five African languages translated into English. Some of the um, the foundational te text of our our history, literary history, which we haven't had access to yet, and they've done that. So this is a community of lovers of words, all of you, and uh, we, we keep each other alive and, and, and hopeful and, and constantly.
be curious. I, I'm really profoundly grateful to all of you for being here. And, uh, you know, when you ask me to read, and I think, all right, from the first one to the last one, <laughs> take us a few hours, but I, uh, I think uh, I'll spare you that. It is hard to decide what to, to, to share with you, and so I'll, I'll make some decisions, but then I also take requests. So if you, um, if you have one that you particularly want to hear um, read out, let me know. I'll start with a poem in which I reflect on my beginnings as a writer, because I started quite late as a writer, and I started by going to an evening class for beginning poetry writers. And I was at the same time also going to an evening class for beginning yoga practitioners, beginning pottery people, beginning everything. You know, I wanted to change my life, I didn't know how. I knew something creative, creative would help. And then poetry grabbed me by the throat. And it was a, a necessary beginning, but a complicated beginning. Complicated beginnings are probably what we hear in South Africa specializing. Here's my beginning as a poet. Poetry for beginners. In the evening poetry class for beginners, a girl in a thick brown coat she doesn't take off breathes in deep and risking something says fast. My boyfriend's in prison. I'm here to find out how to write to him through the bars. And someone laughs. And she pulls herself back into her coat. And from inside, looks past us. And the next week, doesn't come back. And I think of her for years, and what poetry is. I think this is my origin, where poetry is a risk is betrayal and the memory of the first question how not to be alone thank you very much um, i think let's let's give each other the, the freedom of not having to put i'll take it that you you're responding in your hearts and in your, in your minds. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, really it's hard to decide what not to read, okay, but um, here's a poem about the 1990s. Some of you, you are mere babies, and that means that you are now in your, your full energy and you're changing the world. Some of us are a little bit, oof, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and those are the ones of us who were around in the 1990s. Um, it's a time I like to think about because it was also so complicated. So, ah, full of everything. So here it is. Surface. One day in the 90s, we sat around talking after a conference in the mountains, and a white boy asked us to make names for the colors of our skin. A conversation we could only have far from where we lived, 
in the separate parts of the city. We were hungry for something. Not like this, but still our wanting made us risk it. Joe worked cinnamon, a girl said to begin, and she was the sleep of the bark of a tree cleaved into history. Athlone coffee, I offered, not admitting Lee coffee. <laughs> the cheap instant we use in our house. One spoon of sugar tapped level against the rim of the bowl. Condensed milk not quite mixed in. Eddies inside the dark, making the color of my hand as I stirred. South African white, he said, a finger to his chest. Then, pointing to a thinner boy, real white. A confession of beginnings made out of skin. What he wanted to say from the start. It was the first time I admitted to myself I loved the skin of white boys. Him I kissed with my eyes closed in someone else's bed, a brittle pleasure brief as breath. And another who, driving a friend home, reached round the edge of the seat for my hand. And we closed our fingers around each other, hungry, hidden, biding our time to the end. Does it matter there were no names for whiteness, but the whole and the real? Back when we tried and failed to make a new country. I see now, I always wanted what was furthest from me, a boundary I conjured into flesh that disappeared beneath my fingers. I never resolved the mess of it, the way you want, is desire and lack at the same time. When I opened my eyes, I told him, bite my shoulder, watching his face as I said it, yes, hard into his eyes, wanting a little of the hurt to come to the surface and stop. being now disobedient, <laughs> but thank you, thank you. I don't know if some of you saw when I came in, I came in with two people on maybe the foundations of my life. A very short person and a very tall person. <laughs> talk about the tall person later, but I have a story about the short person. Whenever she and my father would come into a room, they'd be announced as Dr. Jardine and Spouse, and people would walk up to my father and say, oh, we're so pleased to meet you, Dr. Jardine. And then my mother would, you know, like, really, like, what we used to call her one comma five in the old days, <laughs> you know, like one and a half meters, she would step out from behind my father and say, actually, I'm Dr. Jardine. <laughs> and so she's here with me, and she, she is remarkably present in my writing, and I really thank you from wherever my heart is located, Mum, uh, for everything. No words to say thank you properly. So here she is in, in one of these poems, and it's called Focal Length. I take out the black and white photos I carried with me to this country and haven't looked at for years and stand the frames next to one another on the dining room table. In one, my mother is young, standing by the window, 
holding the telephone with its spiraling black cord to her ear, the curtain slanting to the side as she turns toward the camera. When I unwrapped them, the tissue paper had only one set of creases, untouched since she packed them for their long journey. In the soft focus of faded paper, I am on her lap, leaning against her like gravity. She is looking at me like my father who is taking the picture. My face is clear and hers slightly blurred, as though his eyes are moving between us, as though the camera cannot capture the eyes oscillation between two people one loves at the same time. Another photo had been folded into three, bent once and then again to fit into a pocket, close enough to the skin to warm the paper, then smoothed out again to fit into the wooden frame. In it, I am turning sideways toward the camera. Someone must have called my name and a line creases just beneath my eyes. Folded, hidden, forgotten, memory doesn't come to me straight. The pleat of the curtain as she leans against it, the paper, the paper keeping its original fold, me turning toward my name. I think I'll give you a little break from me now for the moment. <laughs> Thank you so much. We don't need a break. We don't need a break. Right. So much to talk about. Um, so, like so many of us gathered here tonight, this evening, uh, I met you first on the page. Um, and many of us have met you first on the page before ever getting the sort of giddy opportunity to meet you face to face and shake your hand and tell you what you mean. And um, as a reader of your work, um, I am deeply, deeply honored to be in conversation with you and I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you so much. So, here we are, 10 years later. Um, and all of us still delighting in the fragrance left behind by the Jewel and Next Body Museum of Ordinary Life and a hundred silences and all of us here tonight for more. And ten years is a long time and some might say a very long time <laughs> to get the next collection. Um, but your work is undoubtedly held up against all of that time, very strong. And as we begin, as I began, and as many of us listened to the introduction, that first poem, you write in that very first poem, and I quote, I think this is my origin, where poetry is risk. And that line was really interesting to me because I'm curious about the risk of being away for a time as a writer, and in the risk of return. Could you speak to us more about that? Thank you. First of all, always be in conversation with Cindy, if you could possibly do that. Because they'll just go on talking forever, and they'll say, don't let this end, please. Uh, you, 
actually, I'll kind of say 10 years because it's actually been 12 years <laughs> since my last book, Poetry. When I first published a book of poetry in 2005, it was a complete miracle for me because I had no understanding about where poetry books came from. You know, I, 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 I stumbled into it through the complete generosity of Kirovetsi Khosetsile, who, after I sent him some of my homework from this evening class, he, he sent it on to publishers and, and uh, um, Kuala Books with uh, Nelika Diaka and, and Gus Ferguson of Snail Press just, you know, contacted me. Habiba, what do you want on the cover of your book? Do I understand English? Is, is this, is this? Yeah, so, you know, that's how it came about. Um, and Ingrid Fisk as well, the, the great uh, English poet, also had some further work, and she similarly had sent it to Gus. And so that's how it came about. So, and then um, I, I was incredibly fortunate to receive the Daniel Chrysler Award, which brought along my publication. So suddenly, in a very short period of time, I, I, I published some books. And then I, I took a breath and I started to think, what does it mean to publish a book and how does one even do it? And I became very daunted by that sudden, you know, we're not doing it very quickly, the reality of, of, of it. And then for a while I thought, okay, I need to take a break and, and, and feel more, learn more. What does this actually mean? And then the break became more of a break, and then I got a job as an academic, and suddenly your entire life gets taken up with you know, measuring this and so many words in that and, and this this kind of journal publication. And so before I knew it, um, almost a decade had passed. And then when I came back into my life, the, the publisher then, James Woodhouse, arranged to have tea with me here in this very book lounge. And he said, you know, Khabiba, I'd like, I think it's time for another book. And uh, I'd like to publish, republish the Museum of Ordinary Life, which had been published by Daniel Chrysler as part of the, the award. And I remember some advice from Nelika Deyaha. She said, whenever you publish a book, it has to be a step forward. I thought, I'm so honored by what James has said, but is this a step forward? And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to work on a new book now. And then I, I, I started, I, all the anxiety of the not writing for all those years came to me, and it really kind of stuck. It held hold of my ankles, and I couldn't move. And then I received this wonderful email from Stias, the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Study, and they said, uh, we would like you to apply for a, um, a, an artist scholarship, uh, but you've got to send us some work and see uh, if you're worthy of this. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so no pressure. So I put together about, say, 10 or 20 pages, and I sent it to them, and they said, okay, come and work on finishing this book. And as a result, I spent nine months there last year, and then, you know, you, you have to face the fact of these blank pages, and the office that is quiet, and your friends look at you, and your colleagues ask, so what did you do today? And Alyssa B were there with me, and, and they were always doing things, you know? So, um, but yeah, I had this, this hospitability and the welcome and the, the press and the own, the, kind of a hunger inside myself. 
sharing with you, meeting with you, and then your first book is welcome with this extraordinary, this, this recognition of what you have brought into the world. And you know, Cindy doesn't write a book. She reinvents the form of poetry in, in, in South African literature. So this example of courage, of, 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 of feeling and listening, you know, eventually I faced that page and I faced that emptiness and I tried hard and I shared with Carolyn who came up to Stellenbosch and would have tea with me and we would talk about amazing things like what does it mean to translate from your thoughts into words, into other languages and, and, um, and eventually I, I had Rustam Fazane as my editor. And boy, then, then the work started. Because he would say, this is not a poem. <laughs> and I think this just doesn't belong in a book. And I would say, yes, Rustam, absolutely Rustam. And I think, I like that. I think it is a poem. And, and you know, you've got to fight and you've got to, yeah. Eventually, this, this is what happened. And, and I should say, the tall person I walked in with, I don't know how much to say about him, but he's the one who took that, that cover photo. And so it's from Athlone. It's, those are sparrows from Athlone. I'd just like to say, those birds are neighborhood birds. <laughs> Thank you. Now I've got like follow-up questions. You're messing up my flow because you've mentioned so many wonderful things. <laughs> no, but it's so great. Um, so, following up on that, let me ask a question that sort of appears simple, but definitely isn't simple. Um, how do you begin a collection, and how do you begin a game? You know, whatever it is that I learned from writing books disappears, because I feel I don't even know how to write a poem never mind how to start a book or when a book is finished. I think partly writing poetry is profoundly about what is happening inside your head and inside your, the, the, the sadness of your life at a particular moment. It's profoundly about this, but it's also definitely about the interaction with other people. And the, the best lesson I've ever learned about my poetry is when I read it to, to people as you are all gathered here, you know, I could read it to my mirror, but I, I learned very little from that. But reading it out loud to a group of people when I can feel your energy and I can feel something, something exchanged between us, that is the, absolutely the best lesson I've ever learned about poetry, books or individual poems or whether it's ready or not. But you can't do that, right? With, with, you can't just get together 30 people and say, listen, okay, where do I start this now? Because it will tax your patience a little bit too much. So it is wherever you can gather your, your people, you know, and whether they can listen to you and you can listen to them. So um, I took a, a cheap shortcut because it happens that there was a poem called Poetry for Beginners, and I thought, okay, that has to be the beginning, you know, then. And I thought, but there's no poem that says ending. So like, how, how do I? So I, I had to struggle. I had to ask Carolyn. I had to ask Rustam. 
But in the end, again, I had to struggle with it. And struggle is very good. Easy is easy leaves you with no answers. But struggle, you know, then, then you arrive at some some insight. The struggle. This is my only answer. <laughs> And I know that there are many people um, in the room who write creatively, um, whether it be poetry, prose. And I don't think a question that gets asked very often, but I think is always intriguing because it's an area um, of contention and sometimes of conflict. But the relationship between the poet and the editor, just a very practical sort of question for you. What is that relationship like, especially when the poet and the editor do not see eye to eye. How are those waters navigated in your experience? Yeah, I learned to write poetry where I felt very little authority. Right? I wrote it as homework for my teachers and I was seeking that experience of not knowing everything. Because I actually frankly didn't know very much. I, I knew about poetry as a literary scholar. So when I was 30, I'd been studying English literature for 12 years, but I so embraced the experience of being a beginner and trusting somebody who had most of their life loved poetry, had written poetry, had corrected their students' poetry, had guided people in the reading of poetry. So that was a, an experience of trust that many of us who have gone to, who have been fortunate enough to have excellent English teachers or Afrikaans teachers or Boston teachers, we've experienced that at high school or at university. The trust in somebody who has devoted their lives to teaching. So it was a very, very good experience actually where I always had to pretend as a PhD student I knew, not having to pretend and actually experiencing criticism as honoring me, taking the time, bringing that expertise to reading my work as opposed to glancing over it and just giving it a tick, you know. But somebody who grapples with the words, who brings their own lifetime of reading, if you find that person, you are incredibly fortunate, right? And there's a difference between having a reader, who might be your peer, and an editor, because the editor relationship is a different one, and you, you find those people if you're lucky, okay? So for me, it's not about fighting with the editor. It's about understanding that I am so lucky if I have a great editor. And I have been truly lucky. With Carolyn Meads, the publisher of Quella, I've had a three-hour meeting going through every line of the entire manuscript. With Gus Ferguson and Nelika Diaka, I remember a five-hour meeting, maybe less points. Um, with Rustin Kazane, it was back and forth, back and forth. This is not because I was so great and everything was already finished because yeah, poetry just arrives full and whole. And it's, you know, you're the genius and only you know how to do it. No, it is a, always a, a process of back and forth, back and forth until 
it arrives, you know, at a form where you feel a yes. You feel a yes. And the yes comes to you after you have worked, right? So the sometimes I have to say, no, I get what you're saying. I, I, I feel what you're saying. I understand why you're saying it. But I, yeah, I, I don't feel it's the right thing for this poem. And, and then the, the editor understands, you know, at, at that point, it's a, a yes or no. And as long as you've, you've received it, you've heard it. And I always remember with 100 Silences, there's a poem called Old Photographs. And it ends with a line which is quite kind of stark. You know, it's really, uh, I'll let you read it. But that last line was a, a point of contention. And one of my, my readers said, however, I think you need to take that line out. You know, it's, it's quite nasty, that line. It's a love poem, but you know, what's that line doing in there? Where, you know, you just go, hmm? And I, I thought about this, because this is a super well-published poet, he's a translator, you know, he's, he knows his stuff. And I was thinking, yeah, should, should I be going for that? And I read the poem, I lived with it, I felt with it, and I thought, you know what? I want to keep that line. And years later, we chatted again with him. He said, you know, it's good. It's good you kept that line. I didn't understand at that point. But yeah, that line needs to be there. That, that slight sharpness of that. That, that, that yeah, I'm not going to apologize for that sharpness part of that last line. That needed to be there. So, yeah, so again, it's, you'll find the people that you need. You know, um, Toni Morrison is very famous for saying, you, sometimes when you don't find the books that you want to read, you are the person who will write the books you need to read. In addition, Toni Morrison was an editor before she became a writer, right? And she said, there's a different part of you that edits than the part of you that writes, right? Now imagine having Tony Morrison as your editor, right? You're not going to say, excuse me, don't touch my words. I'm, I'm the person who's, who's a poet. Don't, don't, don't mess with it. You recognize this person who is the Miss Morrison that would go on to write what we need to read, right? So that editorial position is one of deep craft. And Every single book of mine that has ever come into the world is better because it wasn't all me. And then one of my editors is here, Alan Moffat. I would say contact her, but she's way too busy. But <laughs> speak to her nonetheless. Rustin Kazane, get his books. And you know, if you're, if you're extremely lucky, you'll, you'll, you'll get to work with him or, or somebody like him. And yeah, I hope that, that works. Who was your editor? Kabuthuman. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
a connection. Something that really excited me was, that, that excites me still, is the way in which you play with landscape and the poet's locale. Mm -hmm. And I mean the poet's locale both in, in an interior and exterior way. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in this collection, it's laced together with very strong detail and craft. And so I wanted to think through the city and the second sight. Mm -hmm which is something you bring up, and which is not something we see very often. And um, so the city, as we know, has been a major character for lots of, for many, many different works, but when you write the city in poems such as Kokobai, The Flats, Hunklip, you write with a haunting attentiveness to the world um, of the Cape as you know it and as you see it. And um, throughout the collection, there's different crossroads where you write about the ghostly shade that covers the city, and which can be seen with a very different kind of sight, with those born Wendy Hallam. Um, that is, but even if you're not born Wendy Hallam, that, that ghostly shade is still nonetheless felt by all of us. And so, I want to know about your relationship to this locale and how writing explores, a how writing offers space to explore that which haunts our lives and imaginations. But before you answer that question, I would like you to dip into one of the poems I mentioned or a poem of your choice, just to give us a taste of how you write the city and its hauntings and the different ways in which the visible and invisible can be seen and felt. Thank you. Oh my goodness, what a question. <laughs> huh. So, let's see. I don't know which one to read. Okay, uh, let's see. Maybe Huntlip. Actually, Heavy Tidal was just uh, asking me about Huntlip and False Bay. So, by the way, I was actually born in the Eastern Cape. I just came back. Yesterday. <laughs> and you know, there's a, a way where some part of, you know, we moved here, my mother's from Cape Town, my father's from Utenay, we moved here when I was really, really, really young. But I went there, landed in PE, drove into that landscape, saw the sign for Utenay, and just part of me, it recognized the space, you know, and Iraqi, also one of my aunts from, from my, my husband who's not from South Africa, he said, so how do you tell an aunt who's family and an aunt who's not family? I said, you don't, <laughs> no, because everybody is, is family. Anyway, so I just wanted to tell you that uh, I'm infinitely a Cape Town person, and I'm also a person that recognizes the landscape I was born into. Even the landscape I now live in, just need all these places. So I'll read Hunter. And for those of you who don't know, if you are standing anywhere on False Bay, you realize you're in a bowl already, like a almost full circle, right? And if you're standing, say, in Musenberg or um, Simonstown, and you look at the place where this part, the full circle almost ends, right? The, the end of that is hunger. And it was infamous and famous. 
famous for being a place where runaway slaves gathered during the colonial period. So today it's a place I look at when I'm at the beach, but yeah, it carries these these layers. Okay. I sink to the boredom, and the sea breathes me in, swallows me down its long blue throat. I follow the almost circle of the bay to Hunklup, eye of a hook, past the black purple shells of our crickles clinging to rocks in Kohobai. Just beyond the jagged reef, cormorants land with mournful claws and claws scraping on rock, their wings and sea cries folding into quiet. Now I am a sea snake, weaving close to the shore through the pull and pulse of current. Past the fishermen on Stratfontaine, casting their long lines into the deep. And past the empty shell of Monwabisi, where children sink below the cruel waves. Past the strand with no name opposite Kailicha, new home and past the curve of road to Makassa, naming the place across the ocean from which the slaves came. Past the meridian of Seal Island, I followed cliffish and sand sharks, shadows of pelicans and gulls falling through the sky of water. And dolphins in their thousands accompany me, and whales are islands near me and ships sail over memories. Along the edge of the bay, the towns and rivers confess their bare names for infinity. Rafir Sonarent, river opening on endlessness. Claymont, small mouth opening on endlessness. Washing against them the endlessness of memory. Now I am one of the dead. I pull myself to Hunklip on a cord of names. I hear them sing in the throat of the sea, the long blue throat of the sea. May I also ask for Kofobai and then we'll get into the question. Um, my cousin who's from Akasa is here as well. <laughs> She'll kick me later on, but I'll just shout out to the professor. Sorry, everyone, page 28. <laughs> I'm hoping later on I'll read you the history of intimacy, which deals with a tangled question about. We who write, like you have written, about intimate things, sometimes difficult things that involve our families. And sometimes the question is, so how come you get to do that? So that's an, an, uh, an open question. Um, yeah, is this your story? This is a story that I heard from my uncle. and. I 
honor him by, I hope, by telling the story in this form. But I think it is a question if I am the person to write this story. Kokobai. Carrying our green canvas tents, darned and patched over 30 years of camping down the mountain at Kokobai, we passed the ghosts my uncle saw. After the children fell asleep on the goodry padded ground, he told my brother late at night stories of the ghosts of slaves who crossed the mountains two centuries ago and are still hiding. Born with a helm, he learned after his early terror not to open his mouth lightly, but to look through the door of time and see when the mountain was the steep route to escape, and how they disappeared into the kloof, barely eating and keeping one another alive, and still do. Tell us ghost stories, the children said, but he shook his head, a shadow himself, and made a joke, his voice tapering off. So thank you. Thank you. So, I'm very curious about that locale, this locale, the sort of heaving restlessness that isn't that that passes the nation, but I think each pocket of the nation has its own history and its own restlessness, and you really explore the restlessness of the Cape in great detail. And I was just very curious about the ways in which you deal not only with those intimate hauntings within your own life, but how you constantly are sort of ricocheting between the interior locale where hauntings are happening and then looking out the window and walking the streets of the Cape where there's a, a, an exterior haunting that sort of is not necessarily lurking in beneath the surface, but is in the air as you know. In the city, I had to learn how to understand the super acuteness with which most of us walk around. You know, I never understand this idea that Cape Town is beautiful. I, I literally could not see it because Cape Town was so complicated many things and I, I couldn't give the word beautiful to it you know and about two years ago a friend of mine from Russia and her her partner was from Singapore we drove towards Hermanus because you know that's what Russians and Singaporeans want to do and then we, then we said oh they've on, on TripAdvisor or something they, they heard that there was this um drive up to the top of Stiendras, near the dam on the way to the south coast. Uh, okay, we can do that. My little, you know, Toyota 1600, it can make it up there. Um, it's a Taz. And we drive, we drive, we drive. First of all, it's gobsmackingly beautiful. Second of all, as I'm driving up, I think, Oh my God, I've been here before. And then I realized 
going to steer us down was something that we as children did with our families several, almost every weekend, you know, and then we'd always forget to get the permit that allowed you in, and my, my mother knew the, the guy who, you know, was there uh, checking your permit, and he knew already the Jardines forgot their permit, and he got them in. And so I realized, I have been here, I had no idea it was beautiful. It's one of the most familiar sights to me. I, I totally not grasped that. So Cape Town was something other to me than the aesthetic. And I had no skin, no language for the aesthetic. But I had it for all these other things, especially all the exclusions of it, you know. I went to school at Livingston, at St. Ignatius School. Those of you whose memories go that far back, it's now called Abbots. It was right next to St. Ignatius Church in Claremont. And I went to Livingston High School, the exact same schools that my mother went to 30 years before me. I also went to UCT, exact same schools all through. Um, but she lived in Claremont. And the year before I left, before I was born, sorry, they were removed from Claremont to 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 Athlone, to Penalty Estate. So I was born into that immediate loss. And in order to go to school, in order for my mother to go to work, in order for me to go to high school, we had to travel the same path. And it took an hour to get to where they had lived. And the painful repetition of going back to what was not yours and going back. My grandfather, for instance, used to go to the same shop to buy bread and cigarettes and cheese, you know, all the necessities. But the same shop that he had always gone to, even though it was so far from where he now lived. But he couldn't let go of the habits that he had learned. His body knew that part, you know. So the city is filled with those memories of, of my lifetime and before my lifetime, but also much longer. And you know, the, the parts are still there. The, the sounds are still there, the sound of prayer of the city, and the interactions among people, the memories of people. That's my inheritance of the city. So I, I, I learned eventually to translate that what my skin was feeling, what, my, what I was perceiving into these words. She makes my job so easy. So, I'm just going to weave, I'm just going to keep roping you into reading us more and more, but it does always set a really wonderful foundation for the question. Um, when I think now, when, when, as you write about returning to the shop and that path and what the body knows, um, it circles back to a poem that you wrote in the collection called um, A Prospect of Beauty. And I'm just thinking about the journey to those places that you've been removed from, but still returned to, can't not return to. Um, and you write a line where you say, around me, 
the A thickens with history. And I'm wondering how you write in a way that navigates that sort of ever-thickening air of history that I think that all artists and all of us in general are, are dealing with. Um, but while never allowing the, the, the writing, the actual writing itself, to be stiffened and suffocated by that air. But before you answer that, please. <laughs> I am loving it. <laughs> Thank you for guiding me. This is a wonderful um, invitation to read this poem because it's basically this native. Right? Um, I was invited to the Netherlands in 2008, exactly 10 years ago, and I wrote this poem because in order to qualify to go to this, this festival, you had to send them a poem. And this is the, the one I wrote. Um, so I'll read it first and then we can turn. A prospect of beauty. So the word prospect is both, you know, an anticipated event, but it's also a place from which you look. Uh, so that was the double meaning of the word prospect. A prospect of beauty. I walk down here in Klacht, where pigeons dip their necks like question marks into the fountain, then right at Rubeirk and into Luop, while the sun slips into the sea and the moon takes its place over Signal Hill. Above me, starlings clatter like typewriters. Higher still, turning right at whale, seagulls tilt like white kites against the wind. I pass through the old silences of the city. Here is the place on the hill where artists sought quiet and the view of the harbor. Below, the city reveals itself. We still walk the neat streets as though inside their paintings. Under the angled light, sorry, under the angled mountain, the soft light, the starlings are cold but I cannot look away from their chaotic and coordinated hunger. What can explain this exact and unjust beauty? The flock clusters at sunset for warmth and seed. Poetry cannot be afraid of this. Sketching the streets, the artists stood on the burial ground of the city's slaves. In the paintings, is something of the private grief of their bodies. In precise patterns, the starlings shadow each other and double back on their own flight paths, slipstreams of warmth, blood trace of the self. Nothing to begin with, and nothing again. Around me, the air thickens with history. On this day, nearly 200 years ago, Slaves could no longer be sold. Nothing and nothing again. I look once more at the painted streets, falling silent at sunset, even the birds still. In the last flash of the sun, 
the city glints white and hard as bone. as much as it existed, was in writing critical work. 
So when I wanted to be clever, I would bring in my critical repertoire and then I would produce it and I would get 60, you know, from these super poets who were I was, I was so deeply humiliated and I think, oh, what? Because I, I was trying to write about war, history, and it just would not obey the kind of writing where you're trying to demonstrate that you're clever and where you, you think, okay, this reference to the state and this reference to this allusion and then I have to round it off with this. And it, 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 that is absolutely not the logic of poetry, at least that, that worked for me. And you, know, you have been much more innovative in the way that you've stretched form and make it serve something that has never been seen before. For me, I was pushing a little bit and then finally I realized if I wasn't going to get 60% from whatever, I had to, yeah, I had to find a way where the, the lyric form, because that was my form, was free to be fractured and heavy and unfinished and and redolent with the feeling that I was trying to translate into cleverness, but where in, in itself it would teach me you know, to, to leave the fear, to leave the, the spaces, to leave the incompleteness. And so I, it really was a matter of learning. And even in this collection, what Rustin was telling me often is that this is not poetry. You know, it's, it's good writing, but it's not poetry. It's, it's prosaic, it's prose. And it does certain things, and maybe this belongs in a short story collection. But you know, here, here where it breaks, where this is, this is what poetry does. And so I'm still learning, um, and I, I'm still refining my method for how that writing emerges for me. Most smooth, you know, the flow that we're speaking about. But I still huckle, I still kind of stumble through it. I've been notified that we've been out of time. <laughs> Shame! <laughs> I've been put on notice. Um, right, so I want to say thank you so much to Quella Press. Um, the Book Lounge, Leopard's Leap, for this wonderful evening. Thank you, Mervyn and team. And thank you to the audience. But do we have time to open it to the audience? Yes. Okay. Is there a roving mic? Because I want to. Who has a question for Toby the Veteran? telling that because it you know, reveals certain things. But uh, this is part of why she's my you know, personal hero. But my father, who didn't finish high school and uh, was this feminist man, who said, you, and he had four daughters, you girls have to be financially independent. You never have to rely on a man. And uh, so he was 
you know, really encouraging me as well to become a doctor. And then I, I said to my mother, I want to be a doctor. Uh, sorry, I want to be a boxer. And my mother said, good, go for it. And then later on I said, I want to be an actress. And she said, excellent, go for it. And I, I didn't sadly do any of those things, but when I read poetry, sometimes I, I get to be actress I never was. So this one really allows me to be a little bit of an actress because it has some voices. So thank you, Amhalga, for requesting it. It's in several sections, but I'm not going to name the sections which are one, two, three, four. But I'll pause. The history of intimacy. You remember it because it's a wound. A cut, 20 cuts. The name for the canings on the palm, on the knuckles, on the buttocks. A finely graded order of pain that we, who should not exist, were assigned for our failures. You keep your white now? Mike shouts in 1987 across the heads of students on Jamison's steps. And the sudden, drawn silence shows we are no longer in uniform in the quad at Livingston High, teasing, hey, why did you look through me as though I don't exist? And this withdrawal from being we called keeping me white. But saying it out loud reveals how we've learned to measure our existence. In the video store, after I've ordered a film, my cousin elbows me, why are you putting on? Putting on, transitive verb. Putting on what? Putting on skin. Putting on not nothingness. When the group areas act is abolished, my mother aches to go back to the street she was removed from, and it is we, grown attached to the scar we call home, who say, no, we don't want to live in a white area this time seeding it ourselves. Mother, how do I write about you? As a medical student on duty at night, she learned to sleep so lightly she could wake in an instant in an emergency. And for the rest of her life, her body became a body that never again could sleep through the night. She told of one evening when, for some reason a little bugged with my father, she left the table early, returning to the bedroom by herself, and found my sister blue for lack of breath. To this day, she recalls what anger gave her, how it saved my sister's life. Anger, breath. Since the beginning, you have been breath. Poetry. You told me how black students were asked to leave the room during the autopsy of white bodies. And of my writing about this, you said, That is my story. That is not your story. And now, with the illness you could not speak of for years, Mother, am I again turning your words? and your silence into a poem. 
1988 at Crawford train station, my brother and I find a blue plank hand-painted in yellow letters. Non-whites only on one side, whites only on the other. Thrown away by the fence next to the tracks. Picking it up, we see the two sides of the sign lie back to back, each half resting against its opposite. Intimate and inverse, but unknown to each other. We knew this was history someone had made by hand, then hidden and tried to forget. We bring it home and come across it sometimes in a corner when we're looking for something else.